You're listening to This and That with me, Angus Mitchell, a podcast series where I'll be talking to students and past students like everything about their dissertation and general uni experience. On this episode, I'll be talking to Sophie Dibbon, a third year student currently on her year abroad studying classics in Geneva. Today, we'll be discussing all things Plato and Plato's Republic. So bored of the Aeneid. I mean, I could literally smash the Aeneid, but... Not many, not many people say that, but fair. <laughs> Just shut, shut, shut your mouth. It's me. Okay. okay. It's the show. Okay. It's the same no, no, show. I love, I love your insights. I love your insights. People say this is the first example of communism and okay. like a paternalistic state, and people have often compared Plato's Republic, his Kalipolis, to Stalin's Russia. Would always reject them because he kind of thinks he always knows best, which is pretty problematic, but... To be fair, that is what I quite like about the Greek gods. I love hearing about their faults, and that's something that I'm more drawn to, and I think it's actually easier to relate to um, gods that aren't perfect. You're listening to Dis and That. Hello, and welcome to Dis and That, episode seven. And today I'm joined by Sophie Dibbon. Sophie, how are you? I'm fantastic. Happy to be here. Happy to be here. And where are you? Because obviously we're doing this via Zoom, but you have a pretty cool backstory of where you're doing this from. This is the first international Zoom call that I've had Ooh, on the show. International <laughs> love. Yeah, I'm in Geneva at the moment. So I'm doing my course classics in French at the moment. And I just did a whole course on Plato's Republic. And that's what I'm going to be talking about today. I am very excited because from a man that knows really nothing about Plato, although I should because I do everything around him, um, I'm really excited to hear a bit about what you have to say because obviously this isn't your dissertation. Um, I don't no. know. Are, are you doing a dissertation this year? No, no, I'm doing next, next year. year. It's my third You're doing a dissertation now. next year. Yeah. So, but you are a specialist in this area, obviously doing classics. So you, you know your bit about um, the past when it comes to Plato. So today we're going to just go around. Is it going to be like a brief overview on Plato or Plato's Republic in general? Should I pass I'm the baton to I'll, you? I'll do, I'll do an introduction on Plato, the historical context, and then we're going to dive into the actual Republic, of which there are seven books of it. Okay. And we're going to go up to book six because book seven, book eight, and book nine. I, yeah, I could dwell on those a bit, but they pretty much say exactly the same thing. So I just thought <laughs> I would not narrow it down. Okay, okay, narrow it down for us. It, it's quite a heavy topic. So I think um, it's gonna it be from a beginner's perspective, I'll try and ask the best questions I can. Don't roll your eyes too much. If I ask you too many stupid questions, please. I won't. I won't. All right, so Plato, who is he? When is he? Let's go. Uh, 375 BC a philosopher and a student of Socrates. And effectively, he just kind of worshiped Socrates in every way. He thought he was the most legendary philosopher ever. And there's a whole group of them at this time who were fighting for democracy, fighting for democracy back in Athens because after the Peloponnesian Wars, there has been this, this thing called the 30 Tyrants where people pro-Spartan oligarchy have come in and corrupted the, the Athenian system and tried to regain a new democracy, but they weren't calling it democracy, they were calling it an oligarchy. And they were called the Thirty Tyrants. And Plato was actually asked to join those and he rejected them. And the thing is about Plato is that he grew up from a very educated background. And then he, he moved to Athens and right, so say 
right you you grow up in the countryside or whatever and then finally you, you go you have your big break you've you've educated and you're ready to become a politician you know let's take nigel farage even though i hate him okay. he comes he comes into the big city life and he's ready to start his life as a politician and he thinks the brexit party is going to help that which obviously it won't but this Plato's coming in and he wants to be a full politician in the city after being taught from Socrates. And then through this, everything just collapses on his face because democracy is gone. It's absolutely ridden of. And his beloved Socrates has been killed from hemlock. So Socrates gets killed for corrupting the youth, uh, introducing new gods and just general moral, like he just, he just went around- really did he like not like democracy or something? I remember there's that famous story where he just didn't think it could really work. Is that right? I don't know that story. No? Okay. I remember he did that <laughs> big old speech as he kills himself. I think it's in some play. Um, Is it but, the apology? Uh, yes, the apology. That's the famous one, isn't it? Yeah. Where as he kills but himself or gi he's given the means to kill himself. Um, something like that. Well, he, he, well, during his death, he is extremely like blase. Like he doesn't really give, can we swear on this podcast? Um, I'll believe so, it. I'll be, it be, better okay. not, better not. Yeah. Okay. He doesn't give a monkeys. <laughs> so <laughs> this podcast isn't as cool as civil service. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't really, he just doesn't really care. And his wife is there like sobbing, crying her eyes out. Like, I'm going to miss you so many. And he's just there, like, one must accept death as death is elbow at the fate or some ridiculous line. And he just he just doesn't really care because he knows that he has gone around humiliating everyone in the Agora, demonstrating the famous thing, you don't know that you know nothing. And he ends up being, according to the Delphic Oracle, the most intelligent man in Athens because he knows that he knows nothing. Yeah. Which I think is a completely unconvincing argument. And I think that actually Plato is a lot better than Socrates in the Republic, and you're going to understand why. <laughs> and <laughs> arguing mainly, his case, <laughs> mainly because the things that Plato talks about in the Republic. So, but yeah, just he was writing this book during this time of the Thirty Tyrants, and he uses these characters, his brothers, his friends, people he comes across in, in the Agora. The Agora was like the Athenian center where everyone dwelled and chattered. Yep. And he uses them to discuss justice and to discuss democracy and the good and our ignorance and all these, all these things which are still so relevant today, which is why when I'm, when I'm reading The Republic, I'm just always so overwhelmed. In book five, he talks about gender equality and says that men and women should both be trained with the same education. This is 2,500 years ago. Yeah. And he's saying well, men, men and women should be trained with the same education. They should have the same military training. Everything they do should be the same. And his way of doing that is really, really problematic, but it's still really interesting because he says that basically, as soon as a woman gives birth, the baby gets taken away by a nurse and given to a random other family because he didn't want any any family ties around Athens because his argument for that is where there are family ties, it means you're more likely to prioritize your family and they're more likely to go against other people, other citizens. 
and he basically wanted everyone in the state to be a family. Wow. Pretty... That's, it's pretty mm. brutal, obviously. But like it's you said, it, 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 is it progressive? You know, it's one of those weird ones. Like It's like a bit of both, isn't it? It's both barbaric and extremely progressive. And like you said, 2,500 years ago, you know. Um, I think I agree because obviously I study a lot of um, ancient Greece and a big part of it for me is like learning about the formations of democracy and um, all, the, all the stuff that went on in Athens, like the amount we can kind of relate to what went on over there um, with kind of corruption in politics, you know, uh, bending the rules of religion for personal gain just all this kind of stuff going on it's it was basically a drama wasn't it oh yeah i think every day but but you know that makes sense because they worshipped theater theater was at the heart of the state you know yeah. at, like the dionysia every year was their biggest event of the whole year in honor of dionysus so i guess it's true that they were extremely theatrical yeah. i mean yeah i mean socrates could have just been like killed just normally but yeah. no he gets but no he had to yeah have poison and had to give his apology and yeah all this but it, it makes for good storytelling now doesn't it so um we we know a bit about who plato was now um and so he was writing this republics um so in terms of who was it for these books was it for um just the kind of elite to read or was it spoken word can you explain a bit about that he, it was certainly not for the elite because he was he was a, a true man of the people, Plato. He would have wanted everyone to read this. And yet, undeniably, it would have been oral tradition. So yeah. the same as like, all of Homer, people would have read this out loud. And that's what he would have intended. I always wonder, like, these people would have, like Plato and so they would have had no idea that people would be still reading this 2,500 years later. But I mean, it's, it's still so relevant today. Okay, so okay, so his first his first book is this introduction into justice, and he has he has this guy called Frasimachus come in, and they're all just huddling around like by the port, just chatting, drinking. Usually, his like, his dialogues involve people drinking quite heavily, and he Frasimachus comes in, and they're trying to discuss justice, and he comes in like, in a really sort of like beastly way. And he's like, justice is the interest of the stronger. Justice is taking advantage of the weak. Justice is about use is about personal gain of the stronger. And then he compares it to a uh, a shepherd with his flock, and saying that the shepherd is going around with his sheep, pretending like he's looking after them, feeding them up, fattening them, but it's only for him because he's going to eat them after yeah <laughs> interesting take on justice um has its yeah. has its points but i assume it's people didn't all agree with that no 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 one agree with it and the thing <laughs> no is, one. is that <laughs> no literally no one but i think what frasimachus was really trying to do is just to demonstrate that you've all been duped if you think that there's justice in the state. And the reason why his argument stands is because the 30 tyrants have just come over and democracy is funked. That's a good one. Nice. So he, he doesn't, you know, he actually does have an argument, but he starts to really lose his argument when he starts talking about how actually injustice is a better life for everyone. If you go around like raping the queen, killing the king, 
for example, is the argument he uses, you will actually be a happier person. And everyone, everyone around you, you everyone who acts in just, with injustice will be a happier person. So that's when he slightly starts becoming less convincing because it's, it's clear that he starts getting a bit overwhelmed and a bit flustered. And he kind of, he seems at the beginning to actually be quite convincing, talking about how we, we're all living in an idealistic world, thinking that the rulers have our best interests in heart, at heart, when the truth is none of them do. They, they give you a false sense of democracy to keep you voting at the Ecclesia and to keep you in line and to keep you going and paying your religious sacrilege and everything and doing military warfare. But the truth is they don't give a monkeys about you. They just, they just are using you. And then this older guy called Cephalus comes in and he's like, no, Frazimachus, like go. I love the go. new voice. I love the new voice. Carry on, sorry. He's like, you need to leave. You'll make a fool out of yourself. And then he says, justice is giving people what is owed to them. And then Socrates is like, hang on, hold on, hold your horses for a second, Cephalus. Would you give a knife to a madman if it belonged to him? Because then you're jeopardizing the life of every, all other citizens by doing that. And then Cephalus is it, he just walks off in a half because he's like, right. <laughs> And then, and then the next person to offer it, offer a definition of justice is Paul Marcus. And he says, it's the art of giving good to friends and evil to enemies. So it's about benefiting get, your friends and harming your enemies. Kind of you get what is, you deserve almost. Yeah. Which Socrates doesn't like either because because he doesn't like the fact he, he just doesn't like the harming your enemies kind of thing Socrates doesn't like that is because he wants justice to not be something like that needs to be reciprocated or it doesn't it can't rely on other people what it needs to be is just good in itself it needs to be desirable in itself and then in book two this guy called Glaucon comes in and he is actually he's Plato's brother and he says you know what I'm going to do I'm going to set out for you the three types of good and these this is really important because this is the first theme of the tripartite and throughout the whole of Plato's Republic you have these certain three things and this from, is the first... from book from book two yeah from book so two so is yeah. book one just that conversation then it's quite a long conversation it lasts yeah obviously we brushed through it but so these books, they're more situational conversations that portray theories. Is that a yeah. fair way of saying it? Okay, cool. That is spot on. And actually, interestingly, you brought that up because Socrates didn't write anything down. I don't even know this. Yeah. He never, he never wrote anything down. His sources are Plato and Xenophon, so his, his students. He didn't believe in writing anything down because he didn't believe he had any true knowledge to write down to pass on to other people because he just he knew that he knew nothing and his whole philosophy was about dialogue and he said the best way to learn about justice and virtue and wisdom is just to talk about it and to like sit by the port and just discuss it and he wasn't condemning like Polmark and Cephalus for coming in and trying to offer their definition of justice or even Frazimachus for that sake he wasn't condemning them. He he just he would always reject them because he kind of thinks he always knows best, which is pretty problematic. But 
so people yeah so he just wanted people to come in and have these discussions with him and that was that was his way of learning through just through dialogue yeah, yeah. cool that it is super interesting so should we take it with book two then when these three the three points they made the three the three types of good yeah so glaucon says there are three types of good glaucon's ambition of book two by the way is to prove for for socrates that justice is desirable in itself and you're going to see why because after that he offers a counter argument but he starts off arguing this that justice is desirable in itself so he says there are three types of good number one a good that is desirable in itself number two a good that is desirable for itself and for for the outcome and three a good that is only desirable for its outcome and he he wants to prove oh yeah he wants to prove that justice is type two good and um can't really and type two type two good was good for doing it itself and good for its outcome also yeah yeah exactly which which is is socrates standpoint so in a way socrates and him then have this discussion and they come up with the outcome that that is exactly correct the correct one yeah, and they're basically trying to counter Frasimachus's argument, who is saying that injustice is is desirable in itself. Anarchy. And anarchy, yeah. And um, bit of a punk rocker. Yeah, he was a maverick, Frasimachus. Fight the power. People, <laughs> yeah, but you know, some people think that Frasimachus was actually like a, a huge moralist, like lib, like huge liberal moralists who who just wanted everyone to wake up and smell the bacon and to realize that we we've actually all been duped into thinking that justice we're living in justice because we're not and then you think that and you read it and you read that argument and then you read his his other stuff where he's actually promoting injustice as a virtue and then you realize that he's actually just mean yeah, it, it's a weird one, isn't it? Because the way you first described it, you know, it, it's pretty graphic, like killing the king and everything and like extreme ex- extremism, basically. And it's like, oh, no way is that anything. Why would that be want to achieve? But then if you kind of put it through the lens of anti-elitism almost, and then when you when you explained how it's more about the, 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 the very top one percent we can apply it to ourselves now aren't they're not doing it for the greater good they're not doing it for everyone else and uh just following the system isn't necessarily the best way forward is actually a viewpoint that is held by a lot of people today you know and it's not an extreme viewpoint at all obviously people aren't promoting well some people are but most people aren't promoting a complete anarchy which involves death and rape you know but um i guess there are points to be made in that extreme example but um yeah it, it's really interesting yeah it's really cool so in book so book two um we'll, we'll try if we went off a bit there but we'll try and stick to the spine of the books so book one was that first conversation about justice book two was concluding justice is that fair to say that they've well socrates terms of injustice anyway uh being the the second good which was the point of it is good and the outcome is good. Yeah. So and book three, that, is that, are we on to book three now or? Uh, no, we're still on book two. Book two. But, and then book two, and then after that is when Glaucon offers what is called the story of Gyges because he's offered this argument that justice is desirable in itself. And then he says, hang, wait, wait a second. I have a counter argument. 
And so he says, right, take Gyges. Gyges just walking around, walking around minding his own business. And suddenly he sees a magic ring and he puts the ring on and he's invisible. And then he starts walking around the town and he's like, I can do anything I want. Nobody's going to stop me. And he's like, anarchy is what I want. That's what I want deep down. So I'm going to go, and he uses the same thing as Frazimachus. I'm going to go rape the queen, God. kill the king. Yeah, I know, it's a lot better, isn't it? Kill the king and just cause absolute political uproar because that's what I want to do. Because no one will know. Because that's the thing. If I'm invisible, no one will know. And he's saying there that everyone does justice because they have to, because it's their obligation. Accountability, yeah. Just exactly like the legal system today. You can't, you know you're going to get condemned if you if you don't do it. So you just do it because you have to, but no one actually wants to. People secretly all want injustice. And that's why he, yeah, he shows the story of Gyges and then Gyges has like the time of his life when he's invisible. But then Socrates like describes the consequences of Gyges when he comes out of his magic ring and when he realizes that actually the harmony of his soul has been corrupted. And when you have corruption in your soul, you will fundamentally be a miserable person. And then we go on to the soul. Wow, that's that's a really cool story actually, because obviously it's so true again, like it's all about accountability, isn't it? That's why we don't do the things we necessarily like are deep deepest emotions that want us to do you know but then Socrates does have a point I know you're not the biggest fan of Socrates but he does have a point that it you might not have accountability inflicted by others onto yourself but your soul itself inflicts it on yourself even if it's not necessarily the law doing it to yourself you know you've always got that on your mind and you feel bad yourself and I, I guess so is this book three now going on to the soul yeah 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 cool, cool. now he now he but that's so true as well you he how cool that he was so aware of what guilt does to your soul at that point as well i guess i guess yeah. that's just human nature which has always existed hmm. obviously <laughs> so <laughs> duh angus nice point <laughs> let me speak yeah. angus i'm the specialist <laughs> Okay, no, okay. No, the soul. Ridiculous. Okay, the soul. Okay. I'll leave it to you now. I'll leave it to you. I'll shut up. <laughs> Just shut, shut, shut your mouth. It's me. Okay. okay. It's the show, okay? It's the no, no, I, lo I love your insights. I love your insights. Oh, it is your podcast. You know, I'm not actually. <laughs> book three, soul. Come on, okay, let's sorry, go. Book three. Okay, so this is the tripartite soul. Again, we have the three. Break the it down three. three. Yeah. We have the rational part of the soul. We have the ardent part of the soul and we have the, I can't say this word, appetitive. Can you say that word? Appetitive. Is it to do appetitive. with appetite or is this a Greek yeah, word? Yeah, it, it's to do with your appetite. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Anyway, you get the message. Okay, the message. So the rational part of your soul is the part of your soul that yearns for virtue and wisdom. The ardent part of your soul is the thing that yearns for anger and for national pride and for like military warfare. It's for like, you know, it is very much in line with nationalism in the sense that you want to do good for your state, which is basically saying like, you're angry at the Spartans because you're, you're angry at the Persians. That's, that's your ardent part of the soul. 
And then the appetite part of your soul is desperate for money, for sex, for drinking, for gambling, for all the dirty, dirty habits that exist still today. And he basically is saying that we all have these three parts of the soul. And in Plato's Fido, he basically talks about this, this charioteer and he has his black horse and it's, yeah, and his white horse. And the black horse is the appetite part of the soul, pretty fucking dodgy stuff. <laughs> yeah. And the white, and the white, the white horse is the virtue. And a good charioteer has both his horses under control. So he's basically saying you need to have all of it in harmony because harmony of the soul equals harmony in the state. That's that okay. was his big thing. He he said that you cannot separate moral and political philosophy. They all go together. If you are a moral person, then your city will thrive effectively. If everyone is a moral person. It was very like, it's just all about the ha overall happiness of the state. There will be consequences. There will be prices to pay. But at the end of the day, you uh, harmony of the soul and everyone together. I actually really like that concept because again, it doesn't deny human nature. It doesn't kind of, it's not perfect. You know, we do have these feelings cause we are human, you know, and it's not saying that that part of the soul doesn't exist, but it's all about the balancing and don't letting it, don't let it take over the black horse, white horse. I think that's really, really interesting. And again, yeah. so, so applicable to just humans in general, you know, it's not just, you don't have to be a Greek specialist to understand that. Yeah, no, totally. He had a really good grasp of the human psyche. Mm. Both of them did. I mean, that slightly, that is for this, for the soul, I think, but then things do get a bit um, rocky. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Because he now creates what we call the Kalipolis, which is called Beautiful City in Greek. And it is when everyone is called the myth of metals. So we have the three classes we have the guardians, the auxiliaries and the class of producers. And it's all, it's all about what is in your soul. So this is when I say things get a bit rocky because it's really problematic that he assigns people to their own classes. So when you're born, you either, depending on your soul, if you have a bronze soul, you go into the producer class. And if you have a silver soul, you go into the auxiliary class. And if you have a gold soul, then you go into the guardian class. And as you can imagine, the guardians have a pretty nice life. Like they're not allowed to have any private property. They're not allowed any excesses of wealth. They're not, you know, they have food on the table, which is produced for them by the producer Produces, class. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the auxiliaries, are soldiers military people who because you know socrates placed a lot of emphasis on dying for your country he that was a quite traditional view that definitely stood for socrates that the best way you can die is on the battlefield kind of thing yeah but um the thing is is that i'm sure in your head you're like well how do you know if they have metal in their skulls? <laughs> yeah. and that's why it's the myth of metals because Socrates and Plato both believed that you would be able to tell just from talking to someone what kind of soul they have. Because if you have a particularly appetitive soul, then it will be bronze and then you're going to the producer class. And if you have a particularly ardent soul, 
then it will be silver and you'll go into the military, the auxiliary, etc., etc. guardian if you have a golden soul. And this is when it actually just becomes quite elitist yeah. because it's effectively saying that some people only belong like on the fields and doing like workforce for this guardian class. And the, the guardians aren't just like sunbathing with a pina colada, like having their all their food made for them in the slightest. The guardian class are basically rulers of the state okay. and people organizing the state. They're kind of like politicians, but they have to be extremely rational people with really reasonable souls if you want to get into the guardian class. So you have to like demonstrate really excessive like, uh, like virtue kind of thing to get into the guardian class and this is when the whole when you're a baby you get taken away and you go into training and education and then people decide which which class you should go into when you're about 10 or something and that's why it doesn't depend on it's nothing it's not like nepotism it doesn't depend on who your father is or who your mother is it's just purely about who you are as an individual. Okay, so because I, I was gonna say when you first told me um, that it, obviously when you're born with a particular soul, it does seem like kind of um, nature over nurture, you know, because I thought you meant that they would then, oh, this person's clearly a producer, that they're, they're, they have to stay in their lane, you know, you have to stay, um, they're born to do what they're meant to do rather than nurture where obviously you're trained up and then see where you're at, you know, what your skills, particular skills are um so we, so but surely there's a line you know when it comes to the class system not everyone was getting the education like we we are, obviously we see athens and democracy is a bit more progressive than somewhere like sparta with their with their systems but um there was still very much class system where a farmer born in the poverty into poverty wasn't going to get the same chances as someone that was born into wealth definitely definitely and that's exactly why this is often referred to as a utopian state. Yeah. And also people say this is the first example of communism and okay. like a paternalistic state. And people have often compared Plato's Republic, his Kali polis to Stalin's Russia. And also, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a paternalistic state. It's all about lying. And when, so when Plato and Socrates, well, when Socrates in the port gets asked you know where yeah exactly what you've referred to this is extremely idealistic and how is this fair to lie to people and put them in certain classes where they don't know it? and you know this is all just like the elite that are doing this and and his reason is all about you have lying for persuasion in order to create overall happiness of the state there has to be you have to justify lying in order and for someone who values reason and virtue so highly it's it's extremely contradictory yeah it seems a bit of a cheat doesn't it it's like oh but there's a flaw yeah. in your argument here socrates he's like oh just lie that's one of them as yeah. well you have to be able to lie so it's a bit of a brush that under the rug isn't it totally yeah and and the thing is is that it's easy to be really critical instantly but i do genuinely think that plato Having read it, I genuinely think that he spent long, hard hours trying to create the best state he could think of possibly. And I don't think he had bad intentions, especially in terms of like having the orgies where random babies are made. 
yeah, no, he, people were supposed to drink, have a symposium, and everyone have sex. People get pregnant, the baby gets sent off. There's no family ties. It's all just loosey goosey. Loosey goosey. <laughs> there's, there's something to be said for that. There's something to be said for that. Yeah. Those are the I days. Know. <laughs> and the thing is, he's still he's dealing with one of the hot topics right now, which is paternity leave, which is the fact that women have to spend six months more looking after their baby they can't go back to work and men can go straight back to work etc and get higher jobs and get better paid jobs and there's no discrimination against your gender and even though it is pretty horrific it is a solution almost to that kind of tripping point inequality yeah that's really interesting yeah he's trying to sort it out but it's brutal fascinating so yeah. back back to the we'll get back to the books um so we've done we've done book one two three four are we, have we we've finished four now four. yeah we've done book four that's that's basically when he talks yeah so that's like the producer class that's, and everything yeah. yeah 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 so the classes the class system which aligned with book three's soul system interesting so book five where are we at now okay so book five is I think we're going on to theory of the forms now yeah no this is theory of the forms and this is gonna be the final okay. book we discuss uh and then I'll do Plato's cave in book six okay cool but I'll make um the theory of the forms quite I'll sum it up because it's actually boring <laughs> okay well none of it's been boring so far so I'll be surprised if this is too well you'll see I'll try and make it interesting <laughs> okay right take this banana okay okay this banana is a copy of a perfect banana up in the sky in the realm of the forms. Okay, take this glass of milk. That is an imperfect copy of the perfect. In the forms, there is perfect milk. There is perfect banana. There is perfect water bottle. It's the good. It's everything in the realm of the forms With is no the perfect version. Exactly but everything on earth is imperfect. It's changing. It's not eternal and you can't trust it. You, he was a huge skeptic and- That's a dodgy banana. Yeah, he's kind of, I mean, it, yeah, he's not wrong. Quite, <laughs> he's not wrong, bit bruised. Black. Yeah, he's quite bruised, but I'm going to eat it. And yeah, so, okay. So that's essentially the starting point of it. We have the, the realm of the forms, which is this, this world which he's never, by the way, never proved exists and never will. But yeah, he's basically said everything is an imperfect copy of that. And when, before we are born, our soul has communed with, with that realm. And when we die, it communes with that realm. And that is why we know what beautiful is and we know what the good is. And basically the good is, is equivalent to the sun and the sun, shows light on everything in the morning you know like the the hills whatever and that is demonstrating the good it's a form of the good and it whenever the good shows it's the highest highest realm of knowledge and wisdom and virtue and it's completely opposite to uh, stuff like belief and opinion he valued belief and opinion really low low and he valued he valued mathematics really high because it's specific knowledge and wisdom which you can only obtain by understanding the form of the good correctly okay. and that's when you get the divided line and the divided line is all about 
So form of the good is on top and then you have opinion and belief, which is the lowest thing. And then you get high, you get to mathematics and then you get wisdom and then you get knowledge and all this stuff. So you, people often think that they are knowledgeable. The truth is, is they just have opinions and beliefs. And what you need to do in order to really obtain knowledge of the form of the good is stop believing what you're seeing around you and trusting your senses. It's all about actually being completely rational about things, which is really not conducive to an average Joe in the slightest. This is what I don't like about, I think these are rationalists, not empiricists. Empiricists, yeah, yeah these are rationalists. This is what I don't like about rationalists is that it's just no viable solution to your life, is it? Like, no. great, there's, there's a realm of the forms which my soul has communed with. How is that helping me in the slightest? It's not. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't. So this is really interesting as well, because um, at a time where I guess most people would think about ancient Greece and gods and the amount that of faith they put in to things they couldn't prove, you know, and where does that come come into this? You know, um, does Socrates completely denounce religion or is that a stupid thing to say? That's not stupid. That is exactly why he got poisoned. There we go. It, we've got, we've come full yeah. circle. Yeah. Yeah, we have, we have. Yeah, so effectively, Plato's theory of the forms and Socrates' initial foundation of it was so problematic for the state of, yeah, as you said, valuing the gods so highly. And also, interestingly, Socrates talks in the Republic about how no one should be reading Homer's Iliad or Homer's Odyssey. And this was, that's like saying in 18th century England, you shouldn't be reading the Bible. Yeah. It's literally blasphemy. It's, it's like, this is what they were brought up reading. And he said, because the gods disguise themselves and come up to humans in the most manipulative way. And they get angry about jealousy and they're insecure and they go rape people. And Zeus is actually a really problematic character who is just power hungry. And we're just looking up to these gods. And Socrates is saying, don't read this, don't read deceiving gods. And he never explicitly says that these gods aren't to, shouldn't be worshipped or anything. He's just saying that children shouldn't grow up reading about these, these sort of deceitful gods, which is really interesting. It's really interesting, yeah, because spoilers to anyone that hasn't read the Iliad or the Odyssey, yeah, they're not they're not the nicest gods. It's it's not perfect, is it? Like more modern religions where God's faults aren't ever really discussed much. You know, it's all omnipotent and omniscient. But exactly. to be fair, that is what I quite like about the Greek gods. I love hearing about their faults. And that's something that I'm more drawn to. And I think it's actually easier to relate to um, gods that aren't perfect. Um, not saying that I'm a pagan, but, um, you know, I, I just mm -hmm. do, find, I do find it quite interesting. So for him to be saying that at a time as well, where it was like, you, you know, like you said, 18th century Europe you know like yeah. everyone was religious it, like it was it was it was completely blasphemous and obviously ended up with death for Socrates so yeah. also just before because you mentioned that obviously you've been discussing um Plato's Republic Plato's Republic and it's him that's writing it down so just to clear up any confusion because I did get a bit, a bit confused when you mentioned it so this isn't Socrates, this is Plato speaking now, because obviously before we were talking in book one and two, it much more what Socrates was saying. Um, just Plato kind of, obviously he's, because Socrates didn't write anything down, Plato's relaying what Socrates teaching, or is he also involving his own thoughts? 
he is bringing his own thoughts from the fan. When Socrates was killed, he, this was him honoring Socrates and then adding okay. his own philosophy, which he learned from. Great. So right now, all these conversations are happening with Socrates. Socrates is the one talking with Paul Marcus, with Brasimachus, with Glaucon. It's still the dudes. Okay, great, yeah, great. What, what a conversation. <laughs> Yeah, I know, isn't it? And also what's really funny is that they're having this conversation in Paul Marcus's house and Paul Marcus literally five years later reverts to the 30 tyrants and becomes this like, political maverick and becomes horrific. And you'd think that Plato would want to write a book about some men talking who were politically uprighteous and you know really morally pure but this is the beauty of the republic is that he's demonstrating that okay paul marcus was talking with one of the most influential people ever socrates and yet he still dwindled his own from, way. yeah yeah from socrates, which is a lot what a lot of people think plato's trying to demonstrate that don't just read this and think that you're suddenly going to become this moral compass you need to figure out your own philosophies by yourself you need to go out there and have conversations with people don't just take it don't just take it all and believe it you know Socrates often is like no 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 don't I don't actually think anymore that theatre is a bad thing corrupting for the soul disagree with me he's always he makes arguments and he wants people to argue against him which is the, the whole point of this book is like building this sense of like argumentative philosophy it's okay to right? have opinions exactly but yeah but then it's it's difficult isn't it because then it's like he doesn't like opinions because they're the lowest form of divided line yeah yeah and what's that about then, <laughs> what that's what's really tricky is that that's why it's so idealistic and also i haven't mentioned yet we have these things called philosopher kings and queens and they these are the people who have pure knowledge of the form of the good people who just completely understand it and can distinguish between wisdom and and opinion and these people are even higher up than the guardians and these are these are philosophers who he thinks should rule the states and did he name drop anyone did he think himself as one of them or I, I, he de he never says it explicitly, but it's pretty obvious he's referring to himself. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, like I don't know, like people that are philosophers, they're really cool. They're <laughs> they're, they're the really good ones. Like if you guys know anyone, um, you know, who's really influential and tells you all the stuff, just let let me know. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. One, one and they live they live in the Agora, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, not not oh, me, yeah. guys, not me. What? Fine, yeah, sure. Sounds like a bit of an Alan Partridge, doesn't it? <laughs> I know. So good. Um, so, so before we go completely off topic, book six, are we ready? Yeah, book six, because book six is actually the most interesting. This in has all home. been interesting. Stop, stop putting it down. Okay. I'm loving it. Okay, no, I know it is. I just, you're going to be mind blown. By okay, Plato's. I'm ready. I'm, so I'm ready. sure, you know, everyone's heard about Plato's cave. Maybe they have, maybe they haven't. I don't know. Okay, so, right. So you have three prisoners and they're all attached by handcuffs in this cave. And the only thing they're seeing is shadows, shadows of a kangaroo, of, of a pineapple, of a teacup, everything. It's just shadows of everything. And this is what is called a beautiful metaphor 
and it is Plato demonstrating how we're all living in a delusional world where we think we're seeing the truth but we're actually just seeing shadows of it we're just seeing imitations it's like we're constantly watching the theatre and we think it's the truth and what happens is one day one of the prisoners gets released from the cave and that he Plato describes him leaving in the most vivid terms it takes up like five pages and he just describes this endless pain for his eyes as a prisoner leaves it's so painful and the light burns his eyes incessantly and he's like take me back take me back I want to go back to my cave all this stuff and he's crawling out and he's being basically forced to leave and then eventually it gets more and more painful and then he comes out to the sun and he looks at the sun and he is in agony pure agony because he's seeing the truth for the first time sun and being this, the truth yeah yeah and he's trying to demonstrate that when you do go through this path it will be horrific because everything you're used to in your entire life everything you're accustomed to is suddenly going to go topsy-turvy and you're going to realize that you've been living in a fake false world all your life thinking that you know knowledge and the truth is you know absolutely zilch and then he he goes out there and then he spends about five days out there and then he understands the truth and essentially becomes like a philosopher king who can just distinguish them. And he goes back to the cave and he says to the other prisoners, you guys should come out here. It's actually incredible and it's the truth. And we're, you're living in a lie right now. Like these shadows, they're just shadows. They're not actual proper things. And that's him saying like, you don't, you, you see, you know, imitations of everything rather than the truth. And it's all about like skepticism, your senses deceive you. And they're like, no, like, no, get stuffed. I'm not going out there. And one of them even says, if you unchain me, I'll kill you. Cause he's I'm so- So comfortable adamant. being surrounded by it. Yeah. That's a place also saying you're, everyone's comfortable with the truth. And then one of them, yeah, and then one of them eventually does come out and just go straight back in. He's like, I hate okay. it out there. Yeah. I don't want anything to do with that. And that is essentially the end of the end of Plato's cave. It ends in book six of the guy just going back into the cave and being like, I want nothing. And that's exactly what his argument with Paul Marcus is when he gets Paul Marcus to talk about it. And it's saying that not everyone is going to obtain this true knowledge and that's why you have the philosopher kings and the guardians and that's why they're separated from the producers is that not everyone is capable of true knowledge and wisdom and that's okay you know he's he's trying to demonstrate that some people are should be producers and they should be told what to do because they don't have the capability to be strong and the thing that i do like about plato is that he's using the potential of everyone in the state for the best way possible rather than condemning people's emotions or personalities he's just using them to create harmony of the state yeah it's really interesting so plato's cave basically is a metaphor for enlightenment i guess exactly. and um and it's not for everyone not everyone's a main character um which is really interesting which like you said just ties in with everything else that's been said um well, that, that is, is fascinating, isn't it? Like surrounding yourself in comforts, having, and I guess we always hear metaphors 
like this, you know, break out your comfort zone. It's for the best, you know, obviously on smaller scales, try something new every day, but um, we, we can relate all of this stuff to stuff that's been written down, spoken about 2,500 years ago, which is why I'm so fascinated in it. And uh, I'm sure people listening are so fascinated too. Well, Sophie, it's been an absolute pleasure. I don't know if there's, uh, that's, that's book six, right? Yeah, that's book six, but book seven, book eight and book nine, just continue to explore injustice and they explore people in the past who have been experts in politics but actually knew nothing about philosophy and that's why they failed right so we won't spoil it but maybe people listening that enjoyed this so much which i'm sure there are a few um can go check that out themselves oh yeah go for it if you've got time on your hands go read plato's republic book seven to is it nine nine in total seven to nine yes yeah. there we go well sophie again absolute pleasure thank you so much for explaining plato and as if you're not even this isn't even your dissertation you just know so much about it and it's so clear to see your passion about it when you do your little voices and everything you know it's so it's so good to see i absolutely love it um yeah thank you so much no angus thank you honestly i, I love i love you know talking about this kind of thing so literally hit me up anytime i love it definitely <laughs> definitely all right bye now sophie Bye, Angus. You've been listening to This and That. All other episodes are available via Spotify and other podcast streaming services. Make sure to follow Express Chill on Instagram for any updates.